All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Legal Tech Week. This is uh, October 3rd, Friday the 13th, October 13th, 2023. This is the show where we talk about top news of the week in legal tech and innovation. Uh, I happen to be coming to you today from my second conference of the week. I'm at the KM and Innovation Conference in New York City, uh, put on by uh, Patrick DiDomenico and Joshua Fireman. Uh, and uh, a bunch of us, well, several of us on this call, uh, not all of us, were also earlier this week at, at the Clio Cloud Conference, which we'll talk about. So lots of stuff to talk about, and we have a special guest panelist sitting in with us today. So let's start uh, our introductions there. Cassandra, you want to say hello, introduce yourself? Yes, thank you, Bob. Um, so I'm Cassandra. I'm one of the legal and technology reporters on the Legal Tech News team um, with Stephanie here on this call. I've been with the team for about a year and a half, uh, and luckily on this podcast, two or three times. So I'm almost almost a regular, almost. Yeah, well, we'll we're going to get you on a few more times than that. Um, and uh, Stephanie. Um, yes, Stephanie Wilkins, Editor-in-Chief of Legal Tech News at ALM, and I work with Cassandra, and it's a delight. <laughs> and uh, last but not least, Joe. Uh, Joe Patrice, the uh, senior editor above the law and uh, the Thinking Like a Lawyer podcast. And I don't work with anyone else on this call, I guess, other than doing this show. Yeah. Uh, and this is it. A lot of our regular panels are not here this week, uh, off in one direction or another. Uh, and I keep looking around because if I if I see uh, any of the organizers of this conference, I might invite them over to uh, come on and say, say hello a little bit. Um, although they won't hear anything unless I take the headphones. Um, <laughs> think about that. Um, anyway, so uh, for uh, I think for a lot of us, uh, Cassandra, you'll have to bear with us for a little bit. I think while we while we uh, deconstruct the the Clio Cloud Conference, and, and then we'll uh, get to some of the other news. But uh, Stephanie, Joe, uh, Steve Embry. Um, who else was there? Uh, none of our other panelists were there, other than Nikki Black was there early at the early part of the week for the conference. But we were at we were in Nashville this week for the 11th Clio Cloud Conference. Uh, what did y'all think? Yeah, I, I kept saying this that last year Clio was my very first conference I did at all in this job, and I had no basis for comparison to anything. I was like, yeah, that's great. And so now a year later whole lot of context in a great way and it really really is a great show um both in terms of how they set it up how they you know treat us as media but how much their customers love them and just the whole thing is even you know we said you know we didn't like the gaylord last year we came around on it this year because it's been so much more organized and like <laughs> it really is just a great show and there were just so many announcements i've never seen that many new product announcements in one show yeah Joe, yeah, I concur. Um, uh, always a book, my favorite, most well-run show that I go to. Uh, it, you know, some wrinkles from past years were worked out here, which was great. And uh, yeah, no, lots of announcements, which was interesting. Uh, it was just a cavalcade. Uh, that first keynote went a little bit over uh, just <laughs> to get through all of the announcements that they had. Yeah, I've never, never seen a two-hour. Um two-hour keynote before but you know if anyone can give one it's jack newton yeah that's as funny as it, it 
it uh, yeah, two hours for Jackie. But anyway, well, that's that's another topic, I guess. But yeah, I I yeah, I definitely saw. I I, I couldn't figure out why I softened at the Gaylord because I hated it so passionately last year. I just could not stand that facility at all, and uh, it's just somehow seemed more palatable to me this year. And I do think it was in part, and I, I did write a piece uh, giving my impressions of the show, but I, one of the things I said is I did think it was in part that Cleo just did a really good job of making it easier to find your way around, get, get you, you know, they, you had a little map in your app. Uh, they had actual printed physical maps that you could use to get around. And uh, um, the people situated around at various places pointing you in the right direction to get from here to there. Uh, a lot of the spaces just seem more intuitively laid out. So yeah, it, the the Gaylord was uh, I don't know I would like I would never go there because I wanted it just for fun like just to stay there I would only go there if I was drag kicking and screaming to go to a conference there but you so, mean like you will be next there. year for ILTA <laughs> like right exactly like I will be for ILTA uh, if if they have us back um, yeah um, but. Um, so yeah, and maybe we should just talk a little bit about some some of the product news because, of course, one of the big uh, announcements this week uh, was the uh, uh, Clio's entree into the generative AI world. Uh, Clio, what is it? Clio Neo. I forget the name of it. Duo. Clio Duo. I was going to say Clio Neo. That rhymes better though. Clio. Uh -huh. Neo. Maybe next year. They should year. change the name. I think they should change the name. Should trademark it uh, now. Clio Duo. <laughs> Um, and it's been funny because now I've been at this other conference and a lot of people here, like just KM, anyways, a lot of KM people at law firms, a lot of people working in generative AI, around generative AI. And a lot of people have been asking me about, well, did you see a demo? Did you see a demo? And I, well, sort of. Uh, <laughs> the demo is kind of like uh, not quite ready for prime time yet. I mean, clearly this is a product that's very much in its early stages. Did but, you go uh, to like the the mass demo they had, or did you get a did you wander down to the exhibit hall? I just wandered down to the exhibit hall. Yeah, so did I. So Joe and I did. And, and that, what, I mean, maybe you saw something other than I saw, but the guy basically showed me like sort of one interchange with 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 it, where he sort of like oh you know a phone call just came in and I'm going to ask it how much this client owes me or something like that, and and. Uh, and that was about it. And then I said, well, what else does it do? I said, oh, that's kind of it right now, but we're working on it. Yeah, it it seemed as though there, there are some legal functions, like uh, you could have it spit out a demand letter based on some templates and stuff like that. Uh, but I, when I looked at it, it seemed as though they were really leaning toward what's kind of the core of the Clio mission, lots of how to run your firm kinds of AI, which in some ways is for the best, because as we continue to argue over whether or not this is all ethical to be playing with. Uh, no one thinks it's not ethical to have it tell you what your utilization rate is. Uh, so a lot of its functions were, what's my utilization rate? What's going on with my bills? Uh, can you put together a quick bill for me based on a template? Can you, um, some of the stuff uh, just kind of office organization wise, one th thing that I thought was very logical was What's my day look like? Oh, you have a meeting with this person from this case. Here's the a quick update on that case and the last three things that have happened. And so that you don't walk into this meeting and feel like an idiot, uh, which I mean, that's pretty, that's one of those things that's not necessarily sexy, but is nonetheless pretty useful for uh, running a firm by yourself. 
Yeah, I agree. The handful of features that I saw on the demo, and I think they were very open about, you know, we've just started rolling out a few features and we're going to be doing this into 2024. I had a lot of conversations with, you know, their chief product officer, their chief technology officer about how they're like, we've been doing this. We don't want vaporware out there at all. So we're rolling out discrete parts of it, discrete functionalities. But I agree with Joe, like some of the, it was really cool. I mean, very simple though. And I mean, simple in a very good way. Like, yeah, they had a feature that was like, rather than like every morning when I wake up, the first thing I do is look at my calendar to be like, am I supposed to be meeting with somebody somewhere? It'll put it up in a little box. Like here are three matters you have that have the next activity coming up. So you click on, you know, my case with Bob and then it goes in there and I can look at stuff and I can even just be like, Bob's about to walk into my office in five minutes, remind me who he is and it'll like give you a little blurb. And but yeah, I could generate, and, and it's just a lot of it is like just simple and just so, useful i think especially if you are that small firm or solo that's doing all the administration on top of the lawyering and then also little things i keep going back to this when they were creating documents out of like they have their templates already and then they're using the gen ai to create the documents out of it and like again assuming that you trust the templates in your own system it would generate the document and highlight for you the things that were generated by ai so you know, we always harp on, you have to have human oversight and look at everything. It highlighted exactly what it was that was being generated by the AI for you to look over. And something like that is so simple, but brilliant to me. It really, I really have always gotten the sense that Clio really does think about their users and not just put things out for the sake of putting things out. So while it is, you know, still an early work in progress, which they admit, the way they're approaching it, I think is very smart and very cool. Yeah, I agree with that. I didn't, and I, and, and I didn't mean in my comments to suggest I didn't think that was a good approach. So just that very—it's not—it's not functional yet. I mean, it's—it's it's very much in an early, early, early stage. And and they said that it's not going to be out till sometime next year. Uh, and but I, I do agree. I like that approach. I, I like the fact that it just—I mean, I mean, in a sense, there's not a whole lot that that it's doing at this point that you couldn't otherwise do sort of within the platform already, but it would take you a lot longer and a lot more clicks and you have to hunt around for information and you know, you're on a phone call or whatever it is. And as you say, the client's about to walk in, whatever it is, you just want a quick takeaway. And, and, it, and that makes a lot of sense to do that. Uh, they also announced the uh, expansion into personal injury law and their new e-filing service. Uh, I, I think that the e-filing one to me actually, I, was like the most practical of their announcements in some way, in the sense that, um, you know, I, I, there are an awful lot of lawyers who uh, obviously are having to be electronically filing documents as part of their daily workflow. And uh, to be able to integrate that directly into your practice management platform seems to make a whole lot of sense. They're playing up, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the triple header of the fact that they also have calendar rules for integrating, uh, automating all the uh, setting of court dates and everything related to a case. And then they've also got uh, their, their document automation software for creating court documents. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you can basically within Clio now uh, be able to uh, uh, figure out all the dates that are related to your case and generate the documents that you need for at least some of the documents that you need for the case and then get them electronically filed all within a single platform. So I, that, that struck me as really cool. And I don't think they said, they said no other practice management platform is doing that. I don't know of any other one doing it. I may be wrong, but it's, I think they're right on that. 
Sorry, yeah. I was muted. Yeah, I can't I can't think of another one doing it either. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. Oh, I was just going because you were taking a time taking time to clearly find your mute button. Um, Technology is hard. <laughs> yeah. Come on. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So it, it's interesting because I despite the fact that they run their show kind of like Apple, I've always viewed Clio historically as much more like Microsoft as far as the appeal being that they kind of create a platform for smalls and solos to operate on, but other things plug into it. Uh, and they kind of, you know, their, their success is being uh, running that kind of one-stop shop store. Um, but increasingly over the last few years, they've taken on more and more stuff directly under the Clio brand. Uh, and so moving into things like e-filing and all is just more along that line. And I think from conversations I had, it sounds like they feel like there's still room for peripheries, uh, peripheral stuff and for uh, niche practice areas things, but that anything that touches kind of the core user experience of a workflow, of a generic like workflow of a smaller solo, they're trying to kind of bring within their own house, which, you know, is a philosophical, uh, maybe not change, but shift. So in, in my piece, uh, summing up the conference, I I feel like I sort of went out on a limb in the sense that I sort of just said as a as a statement that I think this is the best conference in legal tech and quite possibly one of the best conferences in legal anywhere of any kind. Uh, and, and I realized that that's kind of a, you know, it, you know, a little bit loaded in the sense that I mean, it, it's only the best conference if if you happen to be the target audience for for for, for Clio. And you know, on one hand, I mean, like I said in my piece, if if you work, you know, if you're the chief legal officer at a at a, at a Fortune 100 company, then you don't want to go to ClioCon probably. Uh, or uh, if you're the head of KM and Innovation at a big major law firm, maybe that's not the conference for you. Uh, but uh, so you know, given that it's 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 the best best certainly the best for the solo and small firm world, but it also, it just has, it, it just managed to pull off a vibe and, and an energy at that conference. There's like no other conference I go to where I walk away feeling the same way or that I feel it while I'm there. And uh, I don't know how they do it, but I think that's the, really the magic of that conference. And it really is. And last year being the first conference I ever went to, I was sort of like, what the hell industry did I just get into? There's people running, mm -hmm. there's, I don't understand what's happening. But then now this year I'm like, yeah, there's just a vibe about it that, like, again, even, I mean, we're there as media, we're not there as Clio customers, but, like, the vibe is still infectious. It's like, they just, there's a there's a joy, and, uh, yeah, they really, that's part of what makes it such a great conference, and it's hard to quantify, like, you can't quantify, like, the vibe of it, but it really is something. So, so does anybody agree with me on, I mean, would, would anybody go out on that limb with me and say this is the best one out there, or... I don't think I'm allowed to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right, too. You work for a company that puts on its own legal tech conference, don't you? That's, yeah. that's a good one, too. It's called, what's it called? <laughs> oh, I don't know. But it's funny, Greg Lambert just said, sounds a lot like a cult. My very first reaction last year was, I think I slacked my team being like, oh my gosh, is Clio a cult? Is legal tech a cult? What did I do? But like, I think we all decided when Joe, when Joe, Bob, and I did an impromptu three of us podcast this week, it came up there also. And we're like, it's like a cult in a good way, <laughs> not the bad kind of cult. I, I wrote it in my, 
I wrote a, a few years ago. I actually put it in my post again this year because it came up because I think Joe brought it up uh, at some point this week, also using the word cult. I had used the word cult back, way back in like a 2019 post about the conference then, only I said, you know, the cult of innovation. I mean, it, it's, it is, it's cult-like in the sense that people have all drunk the Kool-Aid of, of really believing that, that tech, uh, that, that there's a better way to practice law and a better way to deliver legal services. And that, and the tech is a big part of that, but it's not all of it, but every, I mean, it's, it's so rare to go to a conference where there are 2,500 people where the bulk of the people there are practicing lawyers or legal professionals. This is not like a insiders techie vendor conference or something. These are people who are in the trenches working, practicing law, and they are all so excited and enthusiastic about the potential for improving their law practices and improving the way they deliver legal services. So it, it does feel like a cult, but a, you know, a, a good, good cult, a good cult. One, an observation that I had this year that I think we all talked about a little bit was that it did seem like there were more um, because of most of the shows we go to for better or worse tend not to be uh, a ton of lawyers. Uh, the actual buyers aren't necessarily all there uh, or that you know, there's a lot of like legal tech insiders. And this one is very focused on that. And I actually thought I kind of got the sense that it might, you know, earmuffs for folks who, uh, with the ABA, but uh, I think it may have taken over some of the steam from ABA Tech Show as far as just a generic, let's bring small law people under one roof show. Yep. Yeah, I think so. Um, Nancy Maryland has me wondering whether I should go to LMA now, if that's, uh, I haven't been to LMA in a number, number of years, but it wasn't cult-like last time I went there. Well, before Cassandra falls asleep on us, <laughs> <laughs> we should probably invite her into the conversation uh, since we since we got her to join us on this Friday afternoon, which you'd be off doing better things. And I'm sure it's a beautiful day in D.C. Uh, but well, if Cassandra, she comes to Ilta again next year, she can experience the wonder that is the Gaylord. <laughs> exactly. I'd love to. Yeah. Can be can be worse than. Well, I don't know if I should say this, but the, the previous <laughs> old says that I've gone to. Um, though I liked, I like it. It is worse. It, that's worse. Oh, it is worse. Okay, <laughs> but it's all inside, so it'll be less outside than sweating. Yeah. All right, I'll take that. So, what yeah. is bad about it? It's just the setup or the hotel in itself that's just not convenient. It's just massively confusing, and I think part of the reason we all liked it better this year has to be because we had been in it before, and it just becomes more intuitive. It's just. It's so easy to get lost the first time around. Can't wait. Yeah. Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be great. Do, do, if, if you know who the who artist Escher is, I, I always compare it to a, a, a lithograph uh, architectural drawing by M.C. Escher or something. It's just like bizarre Byzantine interconnected things that don't go anywhere and stairs to elevate escalators and, and weird atriums that take you off weird it's just it's just a like weird you can place. you can ride a boat on a river inside yes should you be so inclined mm -hmm. yeah i, I want to be inclined to do that for yeah. sure I mean, that is the, the scale nowhere, we're so. talking about <laughs> you're in the middle of nowhere people say it's nashville it's not nashville it's it's like out i mean it is next to grand Ole opry so that's something but it's it's not nashville it's like a what 30 minute ride 20 minute ride at least in the mm. so um so tell us about your story, Mr. Cassandra. Yes. Um, 
Yeah, I think it came just from, you know, growing questions and conversations in the industry around you know, how much all of this Genova AI tech is actually going to cost. And I think I wanted to, I pitched a story sort of being like, listen, I've heard both sides of this story. People are telling me that it's cheap, that it's going to be accessible for everyone. And then the other side, which are, you know, big firms that are coming to me and saying, we're not going to be afford, we're not going to afford this after we're done, you know, testing out those products. And so we wanted to get sort of a first step inside this, this, conversation and, and looking into pricing and it was really interesting for me I learned a lot doing this story um, and there's definitely room to do a couple more and digging a little deeper but basically what I found out is that um, there's a lot of avenues at this point that law firms can go um, in terms of if they want to bring you know a gen AI tool in their in their firm or use one some are building you know their own tools um, on the, they're just building on top of their models. Um, some are turning to legal tech providers, which is sort of the common avenue. Um, and then there's there's discussions there around pricing and whether that's accessible or not. And then we have some that are going to those open source models that are supposedly free and amazing and just, you can do whatever you want. But then it turns out that those come with hidden fees and there's a lot of restrictions and it's really complicated, honestly, um, even for me to take out sort of a winner out of all of those. So I don't know how firms are going to be able or legal professionals are going to be able to do that. Um, my sense is it's going to get more expensive, I think, based on what I've been told in these conversations. Um, and I'm not sure how, I'm not sure which kind of firms are going to be able to afford which, which options. So I know that someone was telling me you do see firms building their own tools, Gen AI tools, but it's a lot chatbots, which sounds like that's a cheaper endeavor than building a whole, who knows, like document, you know, based solution. Um, so yeah, I think it's gonna be interesting. I think there's more to be done and looked into. I'm curious to see actually people's reactions to it and see like what their questions are and, and what they've been told, you know, about their vendors and, and their partners and so on, because there's a lot of different conflicting um, narratives getting told right now. So yeah, what did you think about it? I thought, I mean, I would have been shocked if you had gotten someone to say this is the clear winner of which is cheaper. <laughs> I mean, chatbots themselves are seem, do seem to be the cheaper approach if we're building, but if we're yeah. talking about bigger scale, they're not really seeing much of that yet. And maybe the firms that are, aren't talking about it, but I, I don't remember who it was, but I think somebody in your story made the point that even if you are going the build route, you have to account for the cost of all the talent you have to hire in order to be able to build it too. And there's, that's a limited, that's a limited commodity right now. So even if technically the process of building is cheaper, the salaries mm -hmm. of the people to build it might not be. Did I read that right? Yeah. And then running it um, over time is once it's built, just running it and, and hosting that in-house um, takes a lot of you know, storage and computing power that costs a lot of money to oversee. Um, and I've heard that from firms, but also for different stories and in different conversations, I've heard that from legal tech providers that tell me, you know, if you want to build your own stuff in house, that's really expensive. Uh, so yeah, I'm curious how this is all going to pan out eventually in terms of prices. When I was asking people, you know, what are you seeing in terms of the, the fees right now? Are some providers really expensive, others not? Then it sounds like there's alignment at this point because they're all going to try to get, you know, people to buy their solution. Uh, but I don't know how long that's going to last, to be honest, because 
for the providers and the vendors themselves, it's expensive to 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 run those. And so, um, yeah, a lot to be a lot to be determined. I think still. When they when they talk about building their own uh, 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 generative AI tools, I mean they're not they're still building off of one of the major models, right? I mean they're they're not they they can't possibly be going out and replicating or attempting to build on their own some. Uh, uh, you know, an open AI large large language model, uh, but they're just they're essentially doing more than skinning it. They're building an interface of some kind to make it more functional. But they've still got to be doing that, right? Am I wrong on that? Or no, you're right. At this yeah. point, not that I know of, and correct me anyone if I'm wrong. I don't think there's any firms that have actually built their own large language models. But we have seen was it this week or last week? A uh, provider build their own yeah. large language models, which is a pretty big deal. Meaning they started from scratch. Um, I believe it was Evisort, and they were telling me that it was very expensive for them to do, and it will not be uh, something that's accessible to all the legal tech vendors on the market either. So I don't know about firms. You know, I feel like that would be even more challenging for them to to do that. But I could be wrong. We'll see what happens. Yeah. I, mean, I haven't. I can't think of. I haven't heard of anybody any firm that has built their own large language model. I mean, some that have been the most advanced in like the machine learning space have, they're certainly playing around with a lot more of them and combining with them in ways to build their tools. That right. is, you know, more labor intensive than just being like, oh, we're gonna stick with GPT-4 and do it that way. But in terms of building from the ground up, I can't think of any. Yeah, the, and this panel that I'm, this uh, conference that I'm at right now had a panel yesterday with the uh, the team from Gunderson Detmar talking about their building of their chat GD um, uh, 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 application, uh, where they basically developed a, you know a, a proprietary uh, um, um, open AI uh, proprietary generative AI tool. But you know the part of the big reason they did that is so that they could have more control over training it against their own documents and and more control over sort of helping to prevent you know the hallucinatory effects of other uh other uh out you know other interfaces to the to the uh to uh, gpt there was an, another speaker today who was talking about it was a, a program today on uh, law firms adopting gpt or something but there was uh, one one woman talking about uh, the, the various ways they'd been experimenting with it in their firm. And, and interestingly, one of them was to write their firm's press releases and help keep their website up to date. Uh, and, and she said, it's, it, she said it, it's been really laughably funny to see the results they're getting out of it because uh, it, it's a firm where they have some stellar internationally known lawyers uh, and, and they'll, they'll try and get uh, GPT to, to create a, a press release about something. And, it still wants to hallucinate. It'll take like it'll take somebody who whose resume, whose real resume, you know, speaks for itself in terms of the cases they've handled and, and the clients they've represented and whatever else. And it will then take the press, it'll talk, take the press release and further exaggerate that lawyer's credentials to make them sound even like, you know, even bigger cases that, they, that it makes up that they handled and all that. Um, so it hasn't worked too well on the press release front. I don't know if anybody's out there using it for that. But I thought that was a funny. I thought it was funny that there's a, a large firm out there experimenting with it for that purpose. Well, we heard early on. I think it was like back in March or something that Edelson, you know, the plaintiffs' firm, was doing it for press releases back then. They were the first one we had heard, sort of from a marketing perspective. But that was obviously pre-GPT-4, and they were, you know, not just publishing. Clearly, not just publishing whatever it came up with. 
But you would like to, I mean, I would think that would have been more, one of the more low hanging fruits, but it's turning out to maybe not be. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, anything else you want to say about that, Cassandra? Or? No, it's, not- it's hard. Uh, it's hard, honestly, because um, I think in the backdrop of these, uh, these conversations is, oh, is someone coming? Like a whole room full of people. Are about to descend right <laughs> behind me. They're just letting out the last session of the day, I think. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I think it, it was hard a little bit to get to the crux of these answers because, you know, while these conversations around pricing are happening, I do hear a lot about, well, what about, you know, the ROI and how much money we're going to save, you know, using these tools, which is a complete valid point. Uh, but it is so early on that it's really hard for these firms and CIOs to do the math and determine an ROI. So I do think, you know, it's a little bit of, yeah, we might need to time out a little bit those those questions in terms of maybe figuring out the price tag, what led to the price tag, and then maybe we can sort of answer the ROI question after. But I'm no CIO, so I can't, I don't know what they're up. But it sounds like it's hard for them to give an answer in terms of how much money we're going to save versus, you know, so... And on the ROI point, that came up a lot at that Lex Fusion day that I talked about that, um, where they had the people, all the people talking, you know, in Chatham's rule, law firms, corporations, whatever. And there's pretty much a universal consensus that even the earliest movers of these that are doing the most advanced stuff, we're a couple of years from actually seeing true ROI and knowing what that is. So. Uh, Seven, you mentioned, or actually Cassandra, I think, mentioned the. Uh, um, the Evisort news. Did you want to expand on that a little bit? Talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Did, you, did, did you write it or did Isha write it? I wrote it, I believe. Oh, oh you wrote everything. Go ahead. <laughs> I think so. It's all starting to blend together, but I do think I wrote that one. Um, it was a fascinating conversation. Um, but basically, yes, they're building, um, and I wish I could pull the actual link, but they're building or they built um, their own custom large language models specifically meant for contracts. And so what the argument for doing so was um, to add some, so fill in the gaps in what they see as sort of what leaves, what, you know, those general OpenAI and, and all the other ones leave. And so, you know, for them, accuracy was a big one. Security was a big one because they get to control, you know, the the, the model. There's no such thing as a black box anymore um, because, you know, they build it. And if something goes wrong, they can go, you know, inside and sort of tweak it and then let it run again, for lack of a better um, analogy. And um, so they, they, that's what that's what their argument was for for building their own is is having that control and um, that goes back to price as well. They can control more of of the cost um, because they don't have to pay you know um, per token usage like maybe other providers have to do. So um, that was sort of their argument for, but they did concede that. Um, that was a, an expensive approach and one that required a lot of, you know, resources, both, both financial, but talent. And again, going back to that computing power and so on um, in-house to be able to build that and to support the running of those models over time. But um, I'm curious to see how clients are going to respond to that. Is that something that means anything to them? You know, having a provider building their own custom large language models versus the ones that are building on top of OpenAI and others that I don't have the answer to, but I'm curious to see how how the market will respond to that. 
I put the link in the chat for people. No, it is interesting because we've seen, I feel like we've seen in the past, you know, people doing a lot based on open AI, sometimes with some proprietary aspects to it, but not, we built our whole, I mean, like Bloomberg GPT did it, but that's not legal tech, like building their own LLM from the ground up is really rare. So I'm curious to see if it pays off for them too. Cause like they straight up told you it's how expensive it is to do it. Yes. And I do believe, um, you know, they were, they were telling me they're sort of a, in a unique situation. I think they have some sort of partnership with, with Microsoft. I believe they might be on their um, investor board or something. So they were saying, you know, we're sort of a unique side of, of the market where it allowed us to do that. But as far as how many others might be able to do the same, I don't know. And will it be worth it for them to do the same? I can't answer that question either. But it was interesting. It was really interesting. Um, and I do think the argument, you know, over more control over your models and how it's running and, and how it's coming out with the outputs that it is, um, that's something that you can't really, you know, disagree with. Yeah, it was interesting. And I, I saw some discussion about what, what, what corporate general counsel think uh, in the chat. There was, a again, one of the speakers at the conference I met today was Mark Smolek, who's the chief legal officer at uh, uh, DHL uh, and he he was talking on basically how to pitch, uh, you know, a, a corporate legal department. Um, and uh, one of the things he was talking about is he said, I, I don't I don't want you to come and tell me you're using generative AI. I don't want you law firm to come tell me you're using generative AI. I want you to come tell me that you're you're not sure about this technology yet, that you're exploring what the possibilities are. You're concerned about the security issues. You're concerned about hallucinations and you're doing X, Y, Z to investigate what the potential is, but don't come in and tell me you're using it. Um, so not everybody's ready for, for chat GPT. Well, and I've also heard, I mean, sort of a flip side of that, like some in-house counsel telling me that you know, when it comes down to the, oh, do you have to get your client's consent and permission to do this and whatever? And they're like, if you're doing the job safely and you're doing it cheaper and faster and better, I don't really care how you're doing it. So. But I mean, those tend to be very tech-savvy GCs I've talked to that kind of do know what their law firms are doing. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, uh, we've got one more generative AI uh, topic today before we can move off uh, onto a final story from Joe. But uh, uh, both Cassandra and I, Cassandra, you've been what the heck are you cranking it out this week? I, I didn't I even realize she was the episode <laughs> one too. I'm like, wow. <laughs> We got the ring working you, working you, you too hard. It's because um, I don't go to conferences, so I just stay home and write while you guys go have fun, you know. Somebody's got to do it. Um, but the other story um, was uh, uh, Lexblog, the company that uh, hosts blogging platforms for legal professionals, released their generative AI integration uh, this week that they're calling Lou, which is essentially a tool for helping lawyers and legal professionals uh, write blogs better. Uh, it's not a blog writing tool. You, you, you don't use it in order to generate a blog post, but you use it to help you ideate uh, for blog posts, uh, to help you as, as you're drafting a post uh, think about uh, it'll do things like suggest potential titles, uh, structure, suggest the outline structure for uh, a post given the titles that you've suggested, 
Uh, it helps you refine the writing if you want to make it, if you've written something, you want to make it more professional or less professional or something like that. It'll, it'll do that for you. Uh, it it uh, creates the social media posts around helping you uh, um, popular, uh, popularize the, the posts that you've done. Uh, some people like to create a summary or a takeaway from their blog post that will produce this little takeaway for you that you can stick into your blog post. Um, so it, it, you know, the bottom line of it is sort of there's, there's nothing it's doing that you couldn't do directly by going to ChatGPT or something, but uh, you'd have to be spending time, first of all, platform switching between between uh, Lexblog and and, and ChatGPT and and uh, uh, to sort of thinking about how do I want to structure these these uh, prompts to get this kind of result done that I want to get done. Uh, and this is just set it all up a nice little convenient uh, uh, sidebar menu of, of buttons that do these little functions for you. Uh, and if worse comes to worse, it does still have the chat interface uh, there as well. So if you do want to just go in and chat while you're drafting a post, you can do that uh, as well. Um, I mean, I was I was actually when, when Kevin O'Keefe, the CEO there, had, had told me he was going to be creating uh, this a, a while back. I, I was really dubious because I really thought basically they were just going to stick in a ChatGPT interface and that would be it. Uh, it's, I was also kind of dubious because I, Kevin himself is always like preacher uh, of the idea that, you know, blog writers, lawyers need to be authentic. It has to be their own voice and, and you can't have somebody else write this stuff for you. Um, but this doesn't really, I mean, this, first of all, it's not just a chat interface, as I said, so that, that concern was, was misplaced. And, and again, this is not, this is not doing the writing for you. This doesn't do the thinking for you. You still got to put that stuff down on paper, so to speak. Uh, and it, it just helps you. It's almost more like an editor, uh, an editorial assistant or something like that to help you clean it up and structure stuff and just kind of bounce ideas off of in a sense. Um, so I, 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 was, I actually liked it quite a bit. I get to play around a little bit. I, I thought it was kind of cool. Sandra, what do you think? You, you got a chance to look at it too. Yeah, I think what I found most, I mean, other than all the features that you described, what I thought was interesting about it is sort of that double approach, um, you know, that depending on where you are on this, you know, as a user on the spectrum of how comfortable you are with chatting with a robot, basically, you know, if you don't want to chat with the robot at all, and you just want to do your own thing, then you have those features sort of already all built up for you and all the prompt engineering um, has been done for you and you just sort of click, you know, all right, I want this to be a little more concise or I want this to be more casual or more formal. Um, but if you do feel confident that you want to have, you know, more control and, and put in your own thing, then you can go to the chat and sort of draft your own prompts. And I think that was kind of smart, actually, for them, because prompt engineering is a skill um, and one that takes time to refine and to make sure you get the results that you want. So if you don't want that, you don't have to. So I thought it was pretty um, a pretty interesting approach that that um, they went with, but yeah, the tool in itself is is really nice. I mean, I could see us, you know, having use cases for it for sure. So, um, yeah, it was pretty nice. I mean, I feel like there's a big. I'm going to make a big photography analogy, which may lose everybody unless they're a photographer in the audience. But like, I was that purist initially that was like, I have to stick with film. I'm not going to use a digital camera. But then once I did, you know, and I became like this professional photographer, I was like not using it in auto mode. I was using it in manual mode, but people can buy these cameras and like have it do everything auto for them. Or you could still learn how to control it to control your output for a bit. So I think 
the same way that there was concern that there was going to be, you know, loss of creativity and uniqueness there, that sort of seems parallel to me in what they're doing with Lou. And I'm I'm curious about it because, you know, there was a concern for all the writers in the beginning that, you know, ChatGPT is going to replace all the writers. And like for some, you know, very basic non, for some, you know, not like some, like an SEO firm that has no, has no personality to it. That could be true. But I, I think these tools, people are finding a way to actually make them help writers while keeping their individuality. And so I'm excited to see how that plays out. Yeah, I'll just say I I played around with it getting my voice um, because, you know, there's some talk about like, well, it could start to learn to mimic based on a robust enough data set. And I, I told this story a lot. What it came back with was a weird caricature of me, not unlike a bad Saturday Night Live skit version of me. Uh, like you could look at it and say like, oh, they put a bunch of Simpsons references into a description of the Supreme Court. Uh, but that's about all it was doing. So I it's a it is an inauthentic style of uh of replication at this point still and th there is a good number of my amount of my stuff you know, on the web that it was training off of too well maybe you're just so distinctive joe <laughs> exactly i mean that's also that's always that possible you're People. irreplicable <laughs> that's true I think you're muted. Yeah, yeah. You think I'm muted or I am muted? You, you were are. muted. There, I was being <laughs> passive, passive aggressive. You were being that. polite. <laughs> um, so we have, we have one more story I think to talk about. Uh, and I, for some reason I thought it wasn't a generative AI, but is it a oh, generative no. AI? It, it is a generative AI. Of course it is. AI. Of course it is. Okay, good, 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 good. So take it um, away, John. So this is this in some ways this is a redux of the chat GPT lawyers. We have a new situation of some lawyers who have a brief that was submitted with a bunch of cases in it that aren't real. Now in this instance, there's nothing explicitly saying this was because of using uh, generative AI. However, there's you know not a lot of reason to assume that they shoved a bunch of fake cases into their brief. Other than that, so let's go ahead and make the educated guess that that's what happened here. Uh, the firm has apparently fired the associate who was involved in this, and they got fined for their problems. Uh, but there was a little bit of a wrinkle to it that I thought made this uh, more interesting than just yet another chat GPT lawyer case, uh, which is in the original case we all talked about, it was, uh, you know, it was lawyers who were trying to get recovery for a guy who'd been injured by an airline. And, you know, they were just trying their best to help out a guy who was maligned and had been cut off from justice and so on. And that's the situation that I think a lot of us, uh, you know, talk about. Uh, this was the very different situation. This was a landlord lawyer who has in the past gone on record saying that he views it as his patriotic duty to evict people. Uh, so not exactly a uh, warm and fuzzy character. Uh, but it raised the concern for me that we've we've talked about these ethics concerns, but we've always thought, I think in the back of our heads that, oh, well, these will all get caught because the lawyer on the other side, like the airline lawyers in the in the more famous case, are going to read it and figure out that there's a problem and that's how this is going to get handled. But in a situation like landlord-tenant where 
upwards of 90% of the people who are getting kicked out of their homes often don't have attorneys. Uh, this becomes a much more pernicious situation where people who already have every advantage in the world in those litigations now have the advantage of being able to, if one were so inclined, make up a bunch of cases and may not ever get caught. Uh, the judge also in this case, in addition, in this case, the tenant was represented, which is how this got caught. Uh, the judge in the story, uh, LAS had written up this story. Uh, the judge also had noticed something was fishy about this brief, but you also have to think, you know, you nobody wants to say these things about judges, but how often does a judge actually dig into the briefs when only one side is represented? Uh, we've had fairly famous cases of where pro se folks have complained that the uh, it was one that um, Judge Posner represented uh, the person in where the judge had just copied and pasted one side's brief because he didn't even bother reading the pro se side. Uh, in a world where that sort of thing happens, this uh, generative AI being used for bad purposes thing can get a lot uglier than it did in the original chat GPT case we all talked about. I think you're muted again. Oh, maybe. Oh, no. Still muted. Unless. My, my space bar trick isn't working for some There you reason. go. Um, yeah, I was keep trying the space bar thing. It wasn't working. Um, uh, what I was going to say, what I was going to say is there's there's the pernicious aspect that you talk about of, of somebody sort of just make, making up case law to support some uh, 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 onerous uh, argument and, and the person on the other side, not you know, pro se person, not being able to defend themselves. But there's also just there's also just the pernicious aspect of uh, of people like this who want to just be litigious uh, and, and uh, in a in a in a, 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 a unconstructive way, you know, just being able to be that much more litigious. I mean, to just yeah. be able to generate court documents and court filings and bring that many more legal actions. And it's just, uh, it, it's potentially really frightening. And that's, you know, we, we've talked previously on the show about the sort of the, the, the potential um, accessibility gap in terms of using this technology and how that could impact the, the future uh, of the legal profession. And, and uh, I mean, on, on one hand, there's always the argument that potentially someday this, this technology could help empower people who don't have access now, but it could also be used to really, uh, you know, uh, put them under the thumb in a, in a way uh, of people who want to use the system to be abusive. Yeah, I think that concern came up. I'm not sure if it was at the Harvard thing we were at or where it was, Bob, but when people were saying like, there was a real concern that, you know, those courts who are already short on resources and time could just be swamped with more and more filings and they could be nonsense filings and that's problematic. But yeah, but on the flip side, particularly in the housing arena, Pablo Arredondo has used this case before that he like at one point in time back when he was renting and he was they, he was a lawyer and like they, his landlord tried to I'm like, oh, I'm allowed to raise your rent by XYZ under whatever statutes. And he just wrote back and was like, that, those statutes don't say that. This is not an AI thing. Those statutes don't say that. I'm smart, to look, smart enough to look them up. And then they never raised his rent again. And if the AI could put that ability in people's hands who aren't an, a lawyer like Pablo, that's where it could be a good thing. So, I mean, there is, it has so much potential for good, but also so much for potential for harm. And how do you balance that is a question I think we're gonna be asking for a long, long time. 
Uh, all right, I think that's all we got. Anything else? Anything else anybody wants to talk about? <laughs> they kicking right. you out of your room, Bob? <laughs> they're, they're about to kick me out. And what, what's worse is I got a whole bunch of mics over here and stuff I got to pack up before I get out of here. Uh, I've been sitting here recording podcasts all day because I didn't get enough at CleoCon, so I'm going to get a whole bunch more. I don't know what the hell I'll do with all these podcast recordings I have now, but... Uh, well, if, if anyone if anyone in the audience is going to Whipple with the ALM's Women's Conference next week in New Orleans, ping me. Let me know. I would like to say hi to you. Otherwise, that's all I got. Whipple. What's the standard? Women in... Women, influence, and power in the law. I love it. Whipple. Yeah. All right. It's actually a great show. Well... You can tell us all about it next week. And I, will. Uh, I think there's some other conferences next week, but I'm not going to any of them, I hope. LMA Northeast, I'm going to. Uh, you are going to that? Uh, yeah, I'm on a panel with Vic with former panelist Victoria. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks to everybody for uh, tuning in again this week. And thanks to all the panelists for joining us. And uh, Cassandra, thanks for sitting in. We'll get, get you on here a little more often uh, going, going forward from here. And, uh, she's she's a ringer, this one. She's read her stuff. She's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just don't want to distract from all the writing she's doing. You know, she's right. good, good, probably got a few more articles to crank out today before the day is nah, I just I, I called it and made the executive decision. I'm like, this is our, we didn't really get to take summer Fridays. This is our summer Friday. We're done for the week. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that does it for the show. See you all next week. Same time, same place. Bye. Bye. Bye.